A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 215 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like the sense that you've made a grave error by working for the Empire, the EU guru himself, our count of these two continuities, Mr. Nathan B. Butler! Hey, everybody. That's when you find out that, like, your family medical leave is basically limited and then after a certain point not only do you have to go back to work but to make sure you don't have to take any more family medical leave they will kill your family that would be no good they're like we don't you don't have to worry about that anymore we're taking care of it all <laughs> it's like that imperial retirement program that simply involves uh Corellian whiskey and a blaster <laughs> oh that's rough that's rough well it's been a little while it's good to be back in the saddle how you been my man i know you got that celebration uh, jive coming that celebration itch riley he's full swing we've got the uh the tutu tango little star wars report dinner going on riley's working on trying to get a podcasting stage uh I- i've thrown some hints that he should talk to you and have you come uh, that direction if they do get it going so are you excited about this man i mean i, I know i'm at that point where i'm like i want to put my my little uh, uh koopa troopa shell on and kind of tuck in and hide out for a bit because it's looking jealousy land up ahead but well, i mean we're excited about it we're kind of at that point where we're like okay we just got to get there man we just got to get there uh it's it's the the traditional rule applies as soon as you start feeling like financially you are in a stronger place something will come along and kick you in the balls so we're just kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to try to make it to that point. But we've started planning ahead a bit. She's got her uh, her leave that she requested back in uh, is it August or October or whatever it was. So nice. she's still keeping an eye on the schedule, waiting for them to actually show the schedule for that week and show that she's off so that she doesn't have to turn around and go to her director uh, and be like, uh, this is crap. I uh, asked for these days off uh, months ago. Uh, to make sure that she has them. But we're in pretty good shape with that because ever since her work injury and the fact that she's one of the few reliable people that she works with, the bosses are like, no, no, she's she's going to get what she needs here because we don't want her to quit. So you're going to do what's right by Jody, which is good, which is awesome. Excellent. And then in my case, it's just a matter of kind of getting everything prepared, uh, actually uh, one of our old podcasting buddies, uh, Sebastian, uh, I was like, okay, so so how do I get some cash up front to make this stuff work? Aha, I've got that old PS4 now that i got the PS4 Pro. Let's get that thing sold. So he's actually buying that from me whenever I go to a celebration. We're just going to meet in person and do that. And and uh, I've got a couple people who are like, hey, dude, they just announced there's an exclusive version of Thrawn for Celebration. Yeah. Can you pick that up? Like, oh, for the love of God, but... We're grabbing them. I'm just not so, oh for the love of God in the sense that I don't want to pick them up for people, but I'm just I'm concerned about getting to a point where I make myself uh, so open to picking things up 
that it winds up being a, a difficult thing. But uh, so far, it's just a couple. So my wife and I have already planned out, okay, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to get these. You'll be right behind me. You'll go up there and get those. We're good. You know, and we got to nice. get those Delray samplers. Okay. <laughs> so... I mean, the just, plan of attack is being it, drawn up. Exactly. The lines are being drawn in the sand. Exactly. We've got like a holographic map that pulls up that shows all the different booths, and I'm figuring out where to drop the proton torpedo to get the most bang for our buck. Um, but I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not even all that excited about going for the panels and such. I mean, that'll be cool. I would love to be able to try to catch up um, with some of the people. Like, I'd love to be able to at least say hello to, like, Pablo or Leland. Mm-hmm. I don't know which authors are going to be there, but I'm hoping that maybe Dan... Uh, Dan Wallace and Jason Fry will be there. I just, I, I don't know. But uh, I'm more just interested in, you know, just being able to meet people that I haven't met before. I mean, we're going to finally get to meet Bethany and Riley who live like yeah. half an hour away. Um, we almost decided to take my uh, PS4 Pro and PSVR with us so that they could finally try out the uh, uh, the X-Wing <laughs> VR experience. But we were like, you know what? They do just live half an hour away. If they want to try that out, Damn it, they can drive half an hour. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those, yeah. why are we taking this with us on a giant trip? So, uh, so, yeah, so everything's being figured out, but it doesn't feel like it's only about a month away at this point. It still feels distant, um, but it's going to catch up with us fast. It's just, you know, when there's all kinds of stuff going on right now, you don't have time to really think too much about what's coming, you know, five weeks or whatever it is ahead you got to think about that whenever things open up to be able to think about it yeah the surreal is mounting what's funny is so we went out uh today's sunday by monday i will have the uh playstation plus again as well as we went out and got an ultimate edition of battlefront so i will own the game twice now i got it for 20 bucks so i can get all that downloaded content Ah. for free so i was like okay now i have a second one and then i saw that you were selling yours for 180 and i was like (gasps) And then I saw that it was sold. I was like, damn it. Oh, I almost, I almost took you up on that, but I was like 10 minutes too late. It was even better, though, because if it wasn't going to have to be shipped, I was only going 130 because I figured about 50 bucks is going to ship the thing. Oh, yeah. Your price was glorious. I was like, oh, we could get Gavin one. We can play in the, he could be in the back room. And then I was like, nope, it's sold. My wife's like, really? I'm like, yeah, it's sold. His stuff goes fast, man. <laughs> be, uh, uh, be aware if you are getting that Ultimate Edition, make sure that when you, uh, you, redeem the code inside to get all that dlc content make sure it's on whatever your master account is your main Uh account and there have been issues with people who had the season pass and all of a sudden the content isn't available anymore they change the way they deal with the licensing for the game like how you actually get access to the dlc so what you have to do is go back basically to the store and just re-download it looks like you're re-downloading the dlc but it's not actually downloading anything all it's really well not anything big. All it's doing is just re-downloading the license to unlock it, and then you're good. But there are some folks who've had all kinds of trouble. Like, the most watched video on my YouTube channel, I think, ever outside of a demo game of Imperial Assault, of all things, is a video that's basically me just explaining how to fix that. Uh huh. Yeah, I accidentally ordered a whole year of PlayStation Plus trying to redeem my code. My wife's like, all right, give me the damn ex- the PlayStation. Give me the, re- the card. Like, I had to step away from everything. I was botching well, it so good. bad. I mean, that means you get... An extra year. That's You don't have to worry about it for a while because it does pile up on top of itself. That's good. My thing now is that anytime I buy anything through the PlayStation Network store, I basically have to go to Amazon to do it because there is something about the PlayStation store that constantly rejects my credit card 
my other credit card, or my PayPal. I don't know why it was working fine at one point, but they did something a few months ago. Weird. And regardless of trying to get it through the system or through the website or through the app, it never works. So if I want to get something that's, say, 15 bucks, I got to go to Amazon and get like a $20 PSN card digitally, redeem that code to put funds in my wallet, and then go in and buy it from the wallet. Ooh. Which is okay whenever the price is close to what the cards would be. But like if I'm trying to get something that's, you know, a few dollars off or something like that, it just means I'm going to have money sitting there in the wallet for the next time I buy something. It's just... It shouldn't be the case. You should be able to use the system as it was intended. But we digress very far. But when it comes to using systems as intended and having stuff technologically backfire, I suppose that's kind of on point. That's true. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we ponder James Lucino's Catalyst, a Rogue One novel. Now, before we jump too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off of Tarkin's arrogance. That's right. I guess before we get started with that, um, speaking of Rogue One novels, we actually have... A copy here of the Rogue One, a Star Wars story novelization by Alexander Freed, the hardback that came out just a while ago. Uh, we have that here as a giveaway. As you know, I usually try to pick these up as they're coming out and pick up whatever any uh, unusual retailer uh, release things would be if there's some kind of retailer exclusive or something. And usually what that means is that by the time that a review copy shows up from Del Rey, oh, we've already got it. So, uh, with that in mind, I do have a copy here sent by Delray of the Rogue One, a Star Wars story novel that we'd like to give away. If you would like to enter to win that copy of Rogue One, go ahead and send us an email to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com, our usual email. In the subject line, put Rogue One in the body of the email. Give us your address in case you do win it, and get those entries in, we'll say, before the American home video release of Rogue One, which is on April 4th. So I'll draw a winner on April 4th, get those entries in all the way up to midnight the night before, which of course is uh, what 11.59 p.m. on April 3rd slash midnight 12 a.m. on uh, April 4th. That is Eastern Standard Time or Eastern Daylight Time. I never quite know which one we're in. Eastern Time if that matters, if you're trying to get into the absolute last minute. But that should hopefully give plenty of people plenty of time to enter, and then this will be shipped out in the mail very soon after we draw a winner, which should allow you to sit back, watch Rogue One, and read it at the same time if you have also picked it up on home video. So, Rogue One novelization, get your interest in before it is released in the U.S. on April 4th. Ooh, can't go wrong there. Now, before we get too deep into our spoiler stuff, the one thing that really jumped out about this book for me when I got my hands a hold of it was the design. I really like the design all the way around. Um, you know, we talk about 
the the lettering on the spine and stuff. And this one wasn't the most inspiring with its green background. It had a very Rogue One kind of Death Trooper green to it. So I get where they were going with that. But what really jumped out to me was the inside. You know, the the design of the pages themselves, when you go in the first, like the second page in is a two-page black background Star Wars. Boom. I mean, it's big, really bold, bombastic. I really like that. Then you have the Death Star schematic on the title page. Then you go to the next page, you got a page for a long time ago a page for the title then a black star field with a crawl i mean each part when they had the parts there was like three or four parts in the in the book they're also all broke up by a star field i thought it was a really slick choice on the design element alone like there was something about that that really appealed to me and when i had my hand on it i was like this is gonna be a good a good story and a it was i really i, I got a kick out of the story i found it was good at the same time though it was kind of a throwaway story in the sense that most of these characters in this are characters that you're in the grand scheme of a grander Star Wars timeline, you're not really going to care about. I mean, they're not going to be around for long, and that's as spoilery as I'm going to get, because I'm sure most of you have already seen the movie, but if you haven't, you'll know when you see it. But yeah, I, I think it was a good story. Like I said, a throwaway story. It is a great companion piece, though, for Rogue One. I, I feel that the lead-in value you get out of it is is worth it. Uh, I did feel like it was a total character-driven story. Uh, there was a big part of it that was Galen as he was struggling with conscious, whereas like Lyra had kind of a crisis of faith. Um, and there were some unique aspects of the point of views, uh, which I'll get to when we get to the spoilers. But overall, I really I, I enjoyed this book. I uh, felt it was probably one of the better companion tie-in books, and I think that this gives us a precedence for the new Disney Lucasfilm Del Rey era of, you know, we're going to get a new film every year, possibly even two a year with the, uh, the episode eight or, or the Han Solo movie going to May, you know, if that turns out to be a test for two movies a year, this being a formula of, well, we have a movie, then we have a book that accompanies it. Uh, I think that's a smart formula. You know, we talk about universe building. What better way than to have a written companion piece for every film that comes out that is doing this? Plus, you're going to have your novelization. So, I mean, with this film alone, we had two books that lead into it. And then you think about right now where we're sitting where there's a bunch of other books that are going to follow. I mean, it's a brilliant move on Delray's part to tie in the way they are. Granted, there is that side of me that's like, well, I, I do like original stories and stuff. And that was one of the cool things that Legends provided us was characters like Coran Horn, uh, you know, Danny Quee, uh, just characters that didn't exist in the films that only existed in the books that had their own stories. You know, the J and cores and stuff. Um, so I kind of miss that to a degree, but I really like what they're doing overall, the, the cohesiveness of this new canon. Yeah, this is one that is, it's an unusual book. And I guess since you started with uh, the, the look of it, I guess I would also note here about the look of it. One, that yes, that is a Star Destroyer inside the dish on the cover. Every time I look at it, I think my cover has been nicked because it is so small. <laughs> um, but no, it actually is part of the cover. And there is as seems to frequently be the case in this era with Del Rey, there is a Barnes & Noble special edition with exclusive content again. Uh, in this case, the exclusive content being that when you open it up, very early in the book there is a fold-out poster that can actually be torn out uh, with two sides to it, one side being just basically a shot of the Death Star. Not even the whole thing, but about what we see on the cover except maybe the last bottom third or so. And then if you flip it over, it's the same thing, but it shows in green outline basically the power systems and the uh, super laser itself inside. So it's sort of saying, 
on one side, here's the Death Star, but the other side, and this is the part that Galen actually works on, which is why this book is supposed to matter, essentially. And I do think that, uh, in a lot of ways, this, this book is defined by its title, because it's not just Catalyst, right? It's Catalyst, a Rogue One novel. And it really is a Rogue One novel. Does it have to do with the main characters of Rogue One? No. But it's, well, at least as far as the heroes go. But it's the backstory of Galen Erso, Orson Krennic, and Lyra Erso, and to a very small degree, Jin, who doesn't really show up all that much within the story. And it's, a, it's basically the setup for that. It's the interpersonal conflict and the, the, the manipulations that go on, and how it is that Galen winds up working on the Death Star in the first place, and why they wind up fleeing to eventually get to where they are at the beginning of Rogue One... Um, some four years after the novel ends. It's one of those novels that spans a lot of time. It reminds me a lot of Lucino's Tarkin. Same author, another book that bounces around in time, in that case because of flashbacks, essentially, that give you background on some characters, particularly Tarkin, but some of the people around him and his relationships with them. In this case, it, this is all interpersonal connection lead up to Rogue One for those characters. It in a sense, also kind of does what uh, the Death Star novel tried to do. Because uh, remember, the background of the Death Star back in Legends was insane. Because you had all these different authors and all these different product lines that tried to give us a little bit of information on the Death Star because everybody wanted to connect to the Death Star. Just like everybody wanted to tell the story of the Death Star plans being found. And the result was this huge mess of continuity issues that somebody had to retcon and sort of pull together into a coherent story. Not least of which being the fact that there was a somewhat coherent story of the Death Star's development until Attack of the Clones came out. And oh, it came from Geonosis and... Dooku had it. What the hell? And sort of where everybody just, their brains exploded back in 2002. So they they sort of hodgepodge it together, made a retconned version of a way for it all to work. And the Death Star novel was supposed to be, it was billed as a story that would give us essentially the background of it and make that all make sense. And it didn't do a very good job of it. It told its own story, but didn't really do much in the way of actually showing how those pieces fit together, so much as just referencing it from time to time, and still left it somewhat confusing. You still had to really use a reference guide to really get a clue on how it actually was meant to fit together. That book didn't fit that mission. So true. This book, in the background of everything else that is going on, is giving us how the Death Star was constructed, at least over the time span of this, which is basically... Uh, it starts near the end of the first year of the Clone Wars, and then it picks up from there and jumps in time up to the end of the Clone Wars, and then continues to jump until we get into 17 BBY, so it's about a four and a half to five year stretch for the book, and it's at the uh, at sometime in 17 BBY is when they wind up um, getting to the end point of the book, and then four years later is when we meet them on Lamu at the beginning of the Rogue One film. I'm just going to give you a sense of context here. So it jumps a lot, but in doing so, tells us that interpersonal story. It tells us the story of the uh, the development of the Death Star that is much more straightforward in canon than it was in Legends because now they sort of have a plan for how it's going to work. They know the difficulties of having a bunch of people try to tell conflicting stories and have it to somehow fit them together for the Death Star. Not all of Legends was like that, don't get me wrong, but for the Death Star, yeah, it was kind of a mess. I don't know. This book is, it, it, again, it's defined by that a Rogue One novel. If you are a fan of Rogue One, then the novelization has a pretty strong Stover effect, as we call it, when reading a novelization or reading some companion piece adds to your enjoyment of the original source. Um, but so does Catalyst. 
Catalyst really makes sense out of these characters and in a lot of ways explains a lot about Galen because of the way that he talks in the film, the way that he acts. You wouldn't necessarily get a sense of his personality and his psychological approach. I would argue he's almost, he's somewhere probably on the autism scale. When it comes to his his actions, the way he thinks about things, the way he approaches problems, the way he, his emotional intelligence, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. But you don't really necessarily get that as much out of the film, but take that and then mix it in with the things that we get within the Rogue One novel. And you really get a sense of that family background and why Jin has the perceptions of him that, uh, that she does. That said, I wouldn't call it a throwaway novel. Uh, because I do think this is necessary background. If you're going to enjoy Rogue One, you really need to read Catalyst because there is so much about Krennic and Galen and to an extent Lyra that you're going to get out of this that I think it's essential reading in that sense. But I don't think this is a Star Wars novel that can stand on its own. If you're not reading this as a lead up to Rogue One, there's not a lot there. I mean, it's a lot of people standing around in rooms just kind of talking and Stuff kind of happening to move the plot forward that's just a slow manipulation by Krennic. I would argue that there's at least one character and a side plot that was added only to give it any action whatsoever in this book. So it's not all just manipulations and people being manipulated, talking about manipulation, and just kind of being in rooms chatting. We've talked about how a lot of the Star Wars novels early in Del Rey's relaunch of this the story group canon have been character studies. But most of the time, those character studies have sort of an action spine to them, and then the character study is part of that. It's just we wonder what it, what impact it's going to have on the grand scheme of things. This one seems like the impact on the grand scheme of things is clear because of Rogue One, but that action spine is very, very light. Um, so if you're looking for a Star Wars book that is about wars in the stars, you're not going to get a whole lot out of this one. Read this for the character back then. Read this to get more enjoyment out of Rogue One. Don't read this as a standalone Star Wars novel, thinking of it that way, because in that sense, you'll be disappointed. Was I disappointed that I read it? No, because I got a lot more out of Rogue One because of it. But understand the context in which you probably should be reading this thing. Yeah, and, and Nate puts it better than I... I mean, when I say throwaway, I mean throwaway in the aspect of, you know, this is really building, like you said, on characters like Krennic, Galen, Lyra. And and because of those characters' grand scheme of things, you know, this is one that you wouldn't necessarily need to read if the Rogue One book wasn't high on your list of things to know about. But I really feel like, especially for Krennic's character... Uh, Lucina really nailed it. Like there were so many times where I could see the actor speaking the words. It just the the way he would talk about Jin in the film was mirrored in the way that he would kind of talk about her in the book. Like sometimes you know he would regard her as an it. Uh, the child, sometimes, I mean, he would dehumanize her in ways that were very subtle that when you saw him do it later, you're like, oh, so he's been doing it the whole time. Like, you know, Krennic was a total dick. I mean, there were some great moments there. And the the kind of, you know, him being in charge of the Death Star and what we learn uh, through Rogue One, or should, we, should I say what we relearn, because, you know, I always thought it was Tarkin's baby kind of thing. And then we learn in Rogue One that that wasn't the case. They really play that part up well. And a character who I didn't think was going to have as much play in the new canon universe, but appears to, is uh, the Grand Vizier, 
um, Masamita. I mean, he he had a bigger role in this, which complements his role in, say, Bloodlines and pretty much his role at standing in every film. Like, he went from being a complete nobody character who had a somewhat important role in the background to having a much bigger role. I think about him and, and the bald chick that first showed up with him in the background story they gave her where she was from Umbar and she had force abilities and stuff too. And it's like, where did she go? Like, she was phased out of everything. And Masamita is like, he's like the new Thrawn of canon, you know? He's the blue skin alien that Palpatine likes and lets him be a right hand man. Like, <laughs> I, I think Masamita, like, in this book and Bloodlines alone, like, they give him so much more power than I ever anticipated him having. I was kind of surprised by that. But the way it tied in with Krennic, Krennic's position in the military, him having a unique position, him playing on Galen's ability to be, you know, such a genius and yet be such a bumbling idiot at the same time. There was a really cool contrast of that where I was kind of like, oh, okay. There was the minor issue of Lucino using a lot of, of higher education words, I will say. You know, I, I, it's not quite as dumbed down sometimes where I'm like, wait, what the hell did he just... I'd have to go back and pull out a thesaurus and find out what the heck the word meant. But I mean, overall, it was a really good book. I, I mean, I say throw away lightly. It's just one of those ones of, of the aspect of it's not important to the overall scheme, but it is definitely important if you're into those character study type stories because it does give you a lot in the in the basis of the Urso family and how that dynamic works, and especially Galen. Like, I, I really enjoyed the dynamic between those three characters, Galen, Lyra and Krennic himself. Yeah, Krennic very much comes across as the opponent of uh, of the the provocateurs of anti disestablishmentarianism. He really wait what? <laughs> I, I feel like okay. One, there's going to be some question here. Well, wait a second, and, and you brought it up. Didn't Tarkin shepherd the Death Star? And wasn't Rogue One kind of out of left field that all of a sudden even the new canon has to say, "Oh crap!" Now there's this Krennic guy. Um, to those who are concerned about that, this does a pretty good job of showing how that worked. And if you actually look at the way that the Tarkin novel and its bits fit in with this, and yes, I spent about 12 hours total just trying to get this freaking book summarized and broken down into its chronological bits for the Star Wars timeline gold. It's difficult. There's a lot of time jumps. It actually turns out that most of what we see within Tarkin when it actually deals with the Death Star comes after this. And the end results of about the last chapter of this book are what set Tarkin up to be in the position running Sentinel Base where we meet him in Tarkin. So it does fit together. It's more that there was just a part of the early days of its construction that we never saw before than Krennic's role being contradictory to... Tarkin's role as presented within the Tarkin novel. And it helps that it was the same writer writing both. Yeah. I do think, you're right, Masamita coming back. Uh, Masamita plays a bigger role here. He plays a role within the Aftermath trilogy. Um, he's finally actually sort of getting some attention, again, as a character that hadn't existed really until we got the prequels. I, I think it's funny that you mentioned the thing with uh, with Thrawn, because it, in the back of my mind, it's it reminds me of how... You know, in Legends, at least, they really were very much on this idea that very much like the Nazis, you would have this racist empire. And in that case, they were all pro-human, anti-alien. And we don't see that as much with the empire in story group canon anymore because West End Games isn't around to sort of really build that in. But it makes me think of, a, of Palpatine sitting back and saying, I'm not racist. One of my closest advisors is blue, <laughs> you know, as an excuse. But it strikes me that you, you said, you know, this novel fits Krennic's character very well. 
and I think it fits Galen's character well. But I sit back and I kind of wonder, because I'm someone who saw, who read this book and then saw the movie. So I read this book and see the movie and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I've got all this, this stuff in my head of what went on with Galen and Krennic before. Um, I've read it in the way that they, I guess, meant to by the release time. And in doing so, I've got that Stover effect. Uh, I read the novelization after, uh, because it came out after. So... I kind of had that Stover effect coming from both before and after seeing the film, so it's subsequent viewings where I'm able to kind of put all that together. But I'm sitting back and I'm thinking about what we do see of Galen in the film, what we do see of Krennic. Krennic was a character who really I didn't feel like I felt had much to him in the film until you get to the end and you see the, you know, the, the I lose nothing but time. And you're like, oh, this guy is obsessed with his freaking career and has a long game going on kind of thing. And then Galen... I got more of a feel for from the film initially whenever we first see him in the message and all, or when we see him in the message. But I think a lot of that came from this book as opposed from that first little bit where we see him on Lamu in the film. I think I, my empathy for him came from Lucino more so than the film. Uh, and I'm sitting back wondering, to some extent, is it that the film's characterization of these characters was on point and clear and Lucino was able to build on that characterization here as a model for the characters? Or is it that the characters are characterized so thinly in the film that basically Lucino could almost have done whatever he wanted and with little tweaks to make it match maybe some phrasings or some mannerisms in the film? No matter what he did with the characters, it would have felt consistent with the film because we just didn't get much depth to either Galen or Krennic in the film itself. I don't know because I didn't get a chance to experience it film first, Catalyst second. But I don't know. It just it doesn't feel like we got a lot of depth with it. Like, the characters have much more depth in this, especially Lyra, but she's only on screen for a little bit in Rogue One. But... The character depth in this is far greater than what we see on the film. And I think about like Galen's mannerisms and Galen's mindset and the things that make me think he must be somewhere on the autism spectrum uh, and the emotional intelligence issues and all that stuff. And you don't get that out of the film much. You just get a few phrasings. And you're like, hmm, I wonder. But this made it clear. Is this Lucino building on characterizations from the film? in a big way and it just all happens to match up very very well or is this a matter of the film not characterizing enough and Lucino being able to fill in those gaps with virtually anything he wants and of course it's going to feel consistent because there was nothing really to clash with yeah that's that's hard to say I almost get the feeling like he had the script because it really felt like the words that Krennic used kind of lined up really well with how he would say them in the other one. The motivating factor, again, I think that that's Krennic is such an easily defined character. I mean, he is really all about his position, his rank, which was one of the things that made me question. It was like, he's doing a lot of things that I would have assumed Palpatine would have known about right from the start, or Palpatine would have said, hey, go out and do this. Hey, go out and exploit said world over here. And it was surprising to me to find out that Krennic was doing a lot of this stuff all on his own, under his own initiative, kind of like, hey, look, I'm getting stuff done. I'm a mover and a shaker. Like, I was like, that side of Krennic was kind of shocked to me to see. <laughs> Before we move into spoiler territory, completely off to the side, but remember what I said about that Battlefront Fix video? As we're sitting here recording, weeks or months after I put that video up, I still just got a new comment. Thank you so much. This helped much. Thanks on that video. So, wow, <laughs> nice. EA, you need to actually tell people how to fix Battlefront because apparently they're still confused. But let's delve into spoilers. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? 
evacuate in our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. So, for years, the Clone Wars have raged across the galaxy. Countless worlds have been ensnared in the conflict between the Galactic Republic and the Separatist Army, led by the devious Sith Lord, Count Dooku. While rumors spread that the Separatists are nearing completion of a superweapon, fear grips the Republic. In response, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine has tasked a secret team of researchers with perfecting a battle station for the Republic, the Death Star. Ooh, scary, scary. And then that leads into the story. It's it's interesting that because of how long this story spans, very little of the book really necessarily deals too much with the Clone Wars, per se. It's maybe about half or less, but that is the backdrop under which this thing starts. So I guess, I mean, for me, the thing that stood out to me about this is that in Story Group Canon's approach, they are giving us a rationale for why it took so long for the Death Star in the first place to be completed versus why it was so quick for the Death Star 2 and gives us a better sense of the mindset behind the project. So, yes. time-wise, you know, in, in Legends, it was this idea, and they, they hinted at this at different points and said it outright a couple times, which basically this idea that even while the Death Star 1 was in the process of being made and finalized, you had the Death Star 2 under construction. So it did take a while. It just... You didn't see it in the background happening. So it was already under construction. And of course, there was that prototype out there at the Maw installation and all that kind of stuff. So they tried to basically say, well, it's not that they just only had four years to get to building it after the first one was destroyed. Uh, it was actually longer. You just didn't see it, which was kind of a odd explanation. You know, it's going to be the ultimate power in the universe, but don't worry, we got its big brother already on the way. <laughs> Whereas in this case, it's this idea that the actual building isn't that big of a deal. Um, and we see within the process of this book, we see like the Prime Meridian ring being made, then we see the finalization of the Equatorial ring, and then they're building in the habitation modules that fill in the sphere itself, and the pieces that are going to come together to make the dish, and so on and so on. And it turns out that basically what took so long, and this is something Pablo has addressed in some of the, I think it was one of those uh, Star Wars show episodes, it's that basically they had to get the super laser to work. They basically had the station, but they were constantly replacing and changing new refinements of the dish and of the setup for the super laser because they could not get it to work. And it was all up to Galen to be the one to figure it out because this is a guy who worked heavily on kyber crystals. And it's interesting to me that in Legends, most of this stuff was always, you know, the Emperor has brought you in on this military project build this weapon for us. Use these big ideas to build this weapon so we can rule through fear. And the best case scenario was that someone truly believed that if you had a weapon like this, it would work as a deterrent, like nuclear weapons in the modern age are said to be a deterrent. So you would have peace because people would not screw with you because they don't want their planet blown up. But in canon, instead now what we have is this idea that you have people who are like that. But when it comes to Krennic, when it comes to a lot of the people on this special weapons group or the strategic advisory cell that he is a part of, in a lot of ways, their thing is very much sort of a Cold War mentality, which is, uh-oh, the enemy's got... the or and, and Cold War is, is where I think of it, but I mean, any war, but Cold War especially, uh-oh, the enemy has the plans to build a Death Star. We must build ours first. 
we must be able to beat them to the punch. Very much like the nuclear arms race, and then eventually the arms race to get bigger and badder nuclear weapons that took place. Or the space race, when it came to being able to strategically position satellites and such in orbit. It's that kind of thing that's happening. So they're being driven by this idea that you protect the Republic by having the biggest, baddest weapons first. Which is different than, well, we just need to rule through fear. Because they're, they're developing this as the Clone Wars is ongoing, so there really is that idea of a threat out there, an opposing side that they have to race to the punch. But to be able to say, not only are we spreading out the use of this to some people who know what it's going to be for, some who kind of know, because like Reva Demons, or however you say her name, she kind of knows what it's for because they're testing a laser, and they test one on a Star Destroyer in the story, but even she's like, so you're wanting something 50 times bigger than this. What is this going to be for? Do you have like some super capital ship being built? I mean, where is this going to be of practical use? So there's that compartmentalization of information all the way down to someone like Galen, who first is working in sort of the private sector and then winds up working on a projects or before Project Celestial Power. He's working on this idea of I want to create and a stable renewable energy source, very much like people working on nuclear weapons saying, well, we can use it for nuclear power to, to have something other than coal and oil, Iran. He's working on this with this the best of intentions, thinking that the Emperor has this dream of renewable energy. And when, when Krennic talks about an example world, he's like, oh, a place where we can give them renewable energy and that will show the rest of the galaxy that it's viable. Sure. <laughs> um, not reading between the lines that he's got all these great intentions of what he's trying to do. But his work is being manipulated. It's that whole thing of, you know, any type of peaceful scientific breakthrough could have a military application. And in this case, Krennic is taking it immediately and trying to build the super laser with it. Only he needs Galen because he's the expert to actually do the final touches to make it really work. Because other people building off his ideas isn't working. But this idea that there could be someone who is of a different mindset. We always talk about, you know, how could the Germans under the Nazis have gone along with things? Like, oh, well, you know, they just trusted their leaders or they believed the rhetoric or they were oblivious or whatever. Or maybe they thought the leaders actually had good intentions. In a lot of ways, that's kind of what Galen is here. You know, how could all these people have come together to build a Death Star that was going to, to bring the galaxy to heal? Isn't that horrible? Well, in Legends, most of the people did believe that mindset. But here, the prime mover to make the super weapon work is really just a guy who thinks... I can bring, he, he's, he's basically the, you know, we're going to have windmills and solar power and alternative energy, et cetera, et cetera. He's the guy who's out there trying to solve the world's or the galaxy's power problems, uh, electrical power and such problems. And it turns out that what he's creating with the best of intentions gets twisted immediately to nefarious intentions. I found that that is a much more human and a much more realistic portrayal of this, reminding me in a lot of ways of a conversation I had with Kevin J. Anderson way back in the day on Chrono Radio about why he approached the Darksaber project in the novel Darksaber in a military-industrial complex, contractors, bids, and crappy production kind of way. That, again, makes this, to me, a strong background for the Death Star. Yeah, one of the things that really was a focus point of everything was the kyber crystals themselves. And 
I found myself learning more or, or seeking out more knowledge about them. I mean, you know, we've known about the Kuiper crystals. They've been around for a long time. But, I mean, like one aspect of new changes is does Luke still create his own synthetic crystal? Because this gives you the impression that creating a synthetic Kyber crystal is near impossible. They mentioned that Kyber crystals are living, which made me question, you know, are like sentient? Because technically aren't all crystals living? Which I then looked up, you know, uh, the general consistency in science regarding something that makes it a living thing are these. Complexity, access to some sort of food or energy, ability to grow, ability to reproduce, the ability to evolve in order to survive changing conditions. And technically, that means that these crystals are kind of alive, which... You know, you have this this aspect of the crystals. If you're around the crystals too long, they would stop you from sleeping. They would, you know, kind of uh, give you a, a sense of things, but not like a force sense. There was some things being played with there that I found very interesting. There was almost a religious reverence with Lyra because of how she saw the Jedi, how she looked at how the Jedi used the crystals. There was some interesting makeups with the aspect of how the Republic was working with the Jedi, like uh, page 35 with Dr. Gubaker. I think how you say his name. He worked closely with the Jedi in designing surveillance and espionage droids. Like, why would the Jedi be in charge of that? Like, you know, the fact that they were in charge of espionage droids and, and having surveillance droids and stuff, I'm like... That's one more example of why Palpatine kind of needed to remove them from power. I mean, that's it's not really what the Jedi were originally about. Uh, so there were things like that. But I like the aspect of Lyra kind of felt like she was like an Indiana Jones of sorts. Uh, you know, what she was doing, uh, the, the way she was going from world to world and stuff. And, you know, you had mentioned before Galen being on the, the autistic spectrum and I think it's illustrated the most with the fact that she would take Galen's notes, his scratches and stuff, and she would basically rewrite them so the other scientists could understand what exactly he was saying. And, and I like the fact that her passion and his passion kind of worked together in this regard. But eventually, because everything was starting to be more militarized, he had to start keeping more secrets from her. And eventually he had to sign an oath, which was which was deliberately planned by Krennic. Like, Krennic was constantly trying to remove Lyra, which kept bringing me back to the moment right before in the film where he has her shot. He's oh, Lyra, troublesome as always. I'm just like, yes, like that relationship, that line was just personified time and time again with every interaction between those two to the point when he finally flat out threatens her. You're like, oh, snap, dude. Now you've done it. Like you're rooting for her to almost do what she did in Rogue One and pull a blaster on him. And so when it happens in the film, you've got this book to kind of set up this stuff where you're like, just shoot her already. Like you've had both sides of it. It's like, which side do you fall at this point when the film comes? I found that was an interesting play in my mind of going back and forth with these three characters. I mean, they're really the hearts of the story, but it's the way that they interact with each other. It's the way that they're interpreting the things around them. I mean, even Krennic, like he is working his way up in the rooms he's at like he's at the back of the room at the beginning and he's slowly working himself up into a position and he is going for like you said you know he's going for the career but he's going for a specific title i can't remember exactly which one it was but he's keeping going, he's pushing for like rear admiral i think is what it is and like they give him lieutenant commander he's like well why not full commander and then when things go backwards he's like well that's not really my fault and if you knock me down a rank then that looks like everything i'm doing with the death star is bad like and that played into his relationship with tarkin so like lucino really had an 
interesting lattice work of threads going here when it came to the interactions of the characters. There were a lot of little things that jumped out to me as well. Uh, little nods to things that Lucino brought over, like Carillion Engineering, um, as well as other industrial cartels that are loyal to the Republic. You know, in original... Corellia stayed neutral during the Clone Wars. So seeing them doing it now, you know, having them being more involved, we don't know what happens with Corellia. So I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on there, you know, because that's a new opportunity. So having that show up, just a little touch on the word. I'm like, it got my brain going. And I saw, I kept getting distracted a lot when I was reading this just because I was like, oh, oh, that's cool. I wonder if there's any other references. Because at this point in canon, it's like just because something's referenced just means that element comes over until like more about it gets referenced. Then you can say, okay, well, that event happened. Well, you can't right off the bat. You you can say, well, you know, there's a reference to that event. So some of that might have happened. But the more references you get, the more you're like, okay, well, maybe that event happened in a different way. But clearly that event still happened in canon, just not the way we thought it would. Uh, uh, An example there is rebels. They bring in Malachor, but it's not the Malachor we know. We know there was a big battle between the Jedi and the Sith and the Mandalorians at Malachor, but just not the same way we knew it before in KOTOR. Yes, that doesn't bring in KOTOR 1 or KOTOR 2 any more than Empire's End having a reference to Chewbacca's son showing up doesn't bring in the effing holiday special! Yeah, that's, that's, that's a pet peeve of mine. Building off some of the stuff that you said there, and then I'll throw in a new idea that I thought was interesting because I'm a government uh, and uh, social studies history nerd. Go back to the kyber crystals. I find it interesting that, of course, in Ahsoka, we got more information about the kyber crystals and how sort of the color is determined in part by the the user when it comes to the lightsabers, you know, the blue and the green, sort of when the light side is being used. Uh, the Sith not creating their own crystals, but instead getting kyber crystals and bending it to their will and in doing so, turning them red through essentially corruption, hence why they all have the red lightsabers and such. It kind of makes me wonder because there's a point at which Galen talks about needing to sort of coerce the crystals that are resisting him into giving up the massive power that they can. It makes me wonder if we should draw anything from the color of the Death Star super laser being green. That this was someone maybe with good intentions doing the coaxing, hence it being green, as opposed to it being someone purely evil of evil intent. (laughs) Otherwise, the Death Star super laser might have been red, which, of course, all comes back to, well, they just thought back in 77 or whenever they were making it in 75, 76. Oh, they thought green looked right. Um, But there's there's a question there. No, that's that's interesting, because that. I've always wondered, you know, well, why do we have green lasers, red lasers, blue lasers? And, you know, it always made sense at one point in my mind that, well, blue was the, the ion cannon type stuff. But then we got examples where that wasn't the case. It was like, well, what the hell's going on? Is it just like a lens color you're putting in there? Like, well, you, hey, check this out. I can make it, Mike can make a rainbow spectrum. I just put this in a filter on the yeah, end here. I mean, here. that's all. I mean, at least whenever it's in regular weapons, you know, there's not a kyber crystal involved. But now that we've actually got an ex- explanation of kyber crystals, you know, let's, you know, game it out. Kyber crystals being important, huge, huge deal, of course, within this book, not something that's very well explained in Rogue One itself. Uh, we hear about the, the Kyber Temple and how it doesn't need to be guarded anymore. Well, why? Because everything's been taken out, it's been ransacked, etc., etc. Oh, the Empire is taking the Kyber crystals up to the Dauntless, the Star Destroyer, so it can then be taken to where? Oh, we know they're part of the Death Star Project, but How? There's a lot of stuff that we don't get as far as the the way kyber crystals factor into things, although they've been seeding the kyber crystal idea for ages. In fact, it turns out, apparently, that a crystal at the heart of the Death Star and crystal that's at the heart of Galen's research at Project Celestial Power, uh, one of those, you know, government names for a project that doesn't sound like what it's meant to be, is the giant kyber crystal that we saw supposedly destroyed, but apparently not, 
in the story reels that were released for the Clone Wars. Um, that, for the Crystal Crisis on Utapau, which actually wound up being included on the Blu-ray, but not the DVD, of uh, the Lost Missions when they came out on home video. So they've been seeding these kybers for a while. In, in uh, Rebels, there's the kyber crystal that's on its way somewhere that uh, Hera and and who was it? Hera and Kanan, I guess it was, uh, stop in space while the rest of the team is having adventures elsewhere. Uh, but they just don't do a lot to describe why it is that they're so important and how they actually work within... Rogue One, or even the Rogue One novelization, whereas this book really does get to the heart of the matter when it comes to them. No pun with heart, since, you know, the whatever stars have hearts of Kyber and all that stuff. I'll say that I, probably when it comes to the Kyber crystal, the thing that, that jumped out at me was there's a moment at which it's after the Clone Wars, they're like, Galen, I'm going to bring you in on this project. You can work for the government on Project Celestial Power, before, you know, him knowing it's a weapon or anything like that. And to sweeten the deal, here's my case... Look at all these kyber crystals. And rather than being overjoyed by it, right there is that piece of the story, that, that segment of the story is ending. Uh, he, basically, he and Lyra are turning to each other and like, oh, crap. There's only one place these could have come from. These are Jedi lightsaber crystals. They're all dead, so they're just harvesting the crystals from their lightsabers. That was an interesting thing of even wiping out the Jedi to an extent winds up being a resource gain for the Empire. Mm -hmm. I like when you talked about uh, Lyra's uh, religious beliefs. That's a big part of running through here. Um, I think that is a necessary component to understanding the family and understanding, you know, her, you know, trust the force and all this stuff. Why it's such a big deal and why... Uh, Jin would have that sort of spiritual connection to it to some degree. Uh, that she even mentions uh, the Church of the Force at one point, which of course is the same organization to which Lor Santeca is a member at the beginning of The Force Awakens. So there's some connectivity there. Yeah, Lyra's character, interesting, she's almost like a caregiver in some ways to Galen. Because you're right, she's sort of the translator of his uh, brilliant madness or his unusual ways of thinking into something that others could use, and that seems to possibly be part of the source of why they can't quite use his work, because his is all so much in his head that even when you put it down on paper or digitally, there's just something missing if you try to translate it that way to use it. But I would bring up another jumping-off point for us, which, again, going back to the government thing, for me, speaking of resources... You know, we never really quite got the sense of what exactly was going on with resources here. Back in Legends, it was, well, there was a Wookiee slave workforce. And here, of course, it's the Geonosians, at least at first, that are working on it throughout this book. But eventually, they'll be wiped out. We'll see the Death Star move away from Geonosis, but that doesn't happen yet. Um, I'd have to... Was that the first time that they give us the name of the hive? Because that was something that jumped out to me. Their hive is called the Stalgassen Hive. And I was like, whoa. I want to that... say we've gotten that in some uh, resource materials before. Okay. But I don't know if we've gotten that in uh, canon. I'm flipping it to the visual guide real quick here. Yes, they moved the Death Star to Scarif away from Geonosis in 9 BBY. So... It's at Geonosis throughout this entire story. It's going to be a while before they move it for security reasons because Saw is poking around, probably because of information he got from Galen. So, given that, it's interesting to see, you know, the Geonosians instead of the slave Wookiee workforce. It's at Geonosis, not at, say, Despair or whatever. Um, and so on and so on and so on. But I guess I never really thought about where the construction material resources must come from. And I guess they touched on it in the old Death Star novel for Legends. But the idea here that they're getting them from the, that ton of asteroids right there by Geonosis. Rich in, rich in, in uh, materials. Awesome. Terrific. Oh, crap, we're running out. What do we do? 
And we get into what is actually a contentious political issue in the modern day in America, eminent domain, basically. Um, they pull out a law, and they even use eminent domain as the phrase that's used in the book, and basically say, well, we can just take a planet and use its resource, or take over a mining consortium and just take all the resources from this planet if we need it for a, a strategic government interest, if it's in the good of all. Um, very much like the government can do with eminent domain, like to build a highway or something you know, in the U.S., but what's interesting here is that there's that extra loophole that a lot of the planets that haven't already been strip mined or been homes to big mining corporations are these legacy worlds. And we get into the other political hot button issue of uh, natural preserves, preserving the environment, having these areas that are pristine by law because they're they're deemed by the government to be these sanctuary areas or to be um, uh, like national parks and such. In this case, they call them legacy worlds. And the government finding a way to get around that, to strip them of that status, so they can then use eminent domain to come in and take what they want. In this case, using Haas Obit to go in and smuggle weapons that they can then use and say, Aha! See? There are weapons on your world. There must be separatist holdouts. We're going to take away your legacy status, and now we're going to come in and take what we want. It's interesting that I think he, and to a large degree, um, John Jackson Miller with The New Dawn, really have this ability to sort of grab a modern political hot-button legal issue or government issue and say, how could this be applied in a Star Wars situation to get us to where we need to go in the story? Or the flip side being, I know I need to do this in the story. How would it work in real life? Aha, let's have the Republic have that ability too. I found that interesting, and that's a side story that gets some play here and actually helps open Lyra's eyes to what the Empire is doing and helps open Galen's eyes eventually to what the Empire is doing with this whole idea of... They're just sort of strip mining these worlds. It's what gives Galen his first inkling of, wait a second, they're building something huge. I don't know what. They're building something huge, and it's all from the same project that I'm working on to make this renewable energy. Maybe I'm not making a power source in the way that I think that I am. But that, to me, is a great way of seeing you know, the real life reflected in. Star Wars. Yeah, no, it was page 119 especially where Lucino, he would totally write down his own Wonders of the Galaxy book. They were talking about it. Uh, she was thinking about writing her own Wonders of the Galaxy book because there were, let's see, but, oh no, by the time she was 29, she visited five of the 50 Wonders of the Core, six of the 30 Wonders of the Mid-Rim, and 12 of the 25 Wonders of the Outer Rim, and she had visited several legacy worlds, environmentally protected worlds in remote regions. And I thought that was really cool. May I add, though, that that doesn't make any sense? For her to do that by 29 doesn't make any damn sense chronologically whatsoever. That is one of the biggest continuity errors and chronological errors in this book. Lyra is 34 when she dies at the beginning of Rogue One, which is in 13 BBY. So she was born in 47 BBY. For her to do that by the time she was 29 would mean she did it by 18 BBY. They're making it out to be something that was done perhaps even before she was married to Galen, let alone before this story, which begins in 22 BBY. So unless they're just saying, well, by the time she was the age that, I'm not even sure she is by this point in the book. I think she is. But like by the time she was that age, she don't, it doesn't make sense. You don't say, you know, if somebody did something by the age of 10 and they're 18 right now, you don't say, well, by the time he was 18, he had done. No, you say by the age of 10 because you're saying by this younger age than they are now. Wow, isn't that impressive? That's what he's trying to do here. But the numbers don't make sense. Maybe if she was 19, but that clashes with when she's at the University of Rodriguez and whatnot. So her background, as laid out by the visual guide, as laid out by this book, 
is all consistent until you get to that paragraph, and then that paragraph doesn't make any sense. She's supposed to be well-traveled. Great. We've got that. We get it. That's awesome. But by the age of 29... Ain't no effing way that that is correct. <laughs> See, and that's a perfect illustration, though, because like when I read that, I was more excited about the you know fifty wonders of the core, thirty wonders of the midrim, the twelve. <laughs> and of, you I'm, know, sitting, I'm and like, you're like twenty nine on that sucker, and I got to come back and figure out where that fits, and I got to add a, a date reference to it. This book was a lot like Tarkin and some of these others, and that whenever I finally was sitting down to start summarizing it, which again took about twelve hours or ten hours or whatever it was, it looks like it's got its own forest growing out of the top of it with all the post-it notes that are sticking out. This is the only time I've ever had to take a book and it had so many references so quickly back to back and so much time jumping around that before I even took the notes from my post-it notes on the pages and put them on the timeline, I was taking the post-its out and writing down the notes on a sheet of paper and I had all kinds of notes like, okay, between this page and this page, there's a reference that it's been like two months. Okay, two months mm-hmm. here. Okay, but over here, <laughs> they're saying it's been like four months between this and this, but this is between the other two, so there's another thing. So is that six months or where, where does that... <sighs> so yes, when I hit that 29, when I was first reading, I'm like, oh, that's cool. Put the post-it note in. But then when I'm actually trying to work on it for the timeline, I'm like, it doesn't make sense. This is puzzling to a point. Well, see, for me, I was more excited about the aspect of what they could do, like in the aspect of an essential guide or a new map guide. I was like, ooh, that would make a fun book. You know, I was like excited. So the concept of legacy worlds was really cool to me from the scouting side of my life. And then to watch what Palpatine was doing and how they were exploiting it. I was just like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. And it created this this dilemma for Haz Abbott, which I, 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 I love the, the character name because if you take his first name Haz and just drop it off, he's really basically named Hobbit and he's one of those uh, grape face kind of uh, species. And I like the fact that Krennic put him into the group because he was like, well, if we send a bunch of humans to go and get Galen and them, that's going to look a little too, you know, we, we can't do that. We got to we got to we got to make it look more like it's a diverse group here. Or, you know, so he was kind of smart. I mean, Krennic would use Haas in so many ways that it built up this animosity between them that played. I love the way that that worked out. And I also like the way that Palpatine used the whole aspect of, well, you know, they're building a Death Star, so we're going to build one. And we get a great moment of that from Krennic's point of view on page 117, where it goes, you know, it continued to puzzle Krennic that Count Dooku hadn't attempted to launch a preemptive strike on the construction site. How would the fact that the battle station schematics were in Republic hands remained a secret? The thinking was that Dooku was too busy working on his own version to worry that the Republic was doing, and in that sense, the project was less about achieving parity than winning the race and being the first to deploy the weapon. And to think that that's kind of basically the empire, at this point, it's still the Republic, you know, but the fact that that's the public perception, that, that Sidious had this out, I mean, in so many ways, the Empire had already taken over. I mean, even the fact that the way Krennic gets has into the Republic's employ, he's threatening him. I mean, there... It was interesting to see that so much of what the Empire, that we knew it for, was already in play as the Republic, and the Jedi were so busy, so focused on what was going on with the light and the dark and the Force, that they just were oblivious to what had happened in the political scheme of things. I was just blown away by that. There was also a really cool thing that, that I think it was Lucino that brought him in, but Lucino salvages the Rin. The Rin are back in canon. I thought that was kind of cool. Little things like that. You know, Lucino is great at that, but that's also where I get to that nitpick side. You know, those big words that, that Nate probably knows. Uh, there's a description on 130 of Lieutenant Onyana, the tall, pale human with coal black hair and eyes with 
Epicantic folds. I'm like, Epicantic folds? What the heck is that? The planet Fukapal? Is it, is it, is it Fukapal? Fukapal? Like, how do you say that? I mean, we're sorry, Michael. Yeah, I was going over it and I'm like, it's F U C A L L P A. So it's either F U Kalpa or Fukapal. I mean, I was having a hard time with a couple of those. And then we get to a couple others where I'm just like, really? That's the choice of words you use? Like, there was one here. I've got it. My, uh, I actually got the definition of it because I was like, this is just insane. Right here. It was Saw Gerrera. Saw's talking to Haas and them. They have a meeting with the rogues, the scoundrels. Saw shows up. Uh, and, and Saw says, my Baluik. And I'm like, wait, what's a Baluik? And so I look it up. It's one spear of operation or particular area of interest. And I'm like, oh, okay. I would have never got that from that word alone. I'm like, Balawick. I thought, I thought he was like going to bring in some new tentacle alien or something. His Bala, the Balawick of the Borg gullet is telling whether someone's <laughs> telling the truth. I don't know. It's, and it's, when it comes to, to Hazobit that you mentioned, one that I didn't think Hobbit at all when I thought about the name, but I was thinking of why is the person's name Haz? I had to call him Obit most of the time whenever I was working on the timeline because I knew that it was going to, if I ever said that that Haz has done something, word's going to say, you just used a double word. That's not correct on me. But I, th- I was thinking about the Obit parts, like obituary, <laughs> uh, as in, you know, the idea that, you know, this is the guy that's bringing death to the worlds without realizing it and such. And you make the argument that when it comes to that whole imminent domain thing, taking over the worlds, the legacy worlds and such, and having to have an excuse, it's a lot like the, well, we don't want you to build an oil pipeline over here. We don't want you to do this that might be polluting or not fit our particular political agenda. So, oh, look, we just found a rare salamander on this corner of your property. It's now a protected area. You can't do your economic activity anymore, (laughs) which is something that's been a controversial issue for a very long time, for instance, in California. So seeing that in Star Wars, again, kind of a reflection of now. uh, But I have to to wonder about has Obit to some degree, and that is, did he really need to be there? Or is has and his storyline built into this book so there's any action anywhere in the book? Because... He's used to be the guy who helps get the uh, the Ursos off of Vault at the beginning. Which makes sense, except they could just have sent the team without needing Haz to do it. They can't, they, but that's what brings him into the story. They could have come up with some other way, maybe special ops, to get those weapons onto the planets to be able to use the imminent domain stuff. It could have been that Saw was the friend of the Ursos. And that's why he came to help them at the end. Instead of it being that Haz was the friend and Haz was allies with Saw and sent Saw to save them. Because Saw hadn't even met the Ursos until he goes and saves them in 17 BBY and takes them out. And that's when he gives them the contact card. Hey, if you ever need something, let me know. Which is when he comes to pick them up. It's like, wow, that's a lot of trust to put in this guy to raise your child if you're both dead and everything um, that you just met you know, at the end of this story. But his biggest role in terms of an action standpoint is that he winds up getting used in a situation similar to the others, but he turns on Krennic as Krennic expected him to do. And in doing so, winds up bringing Tarkin in. Tarkin's trying to take over this system, which happens to be the system where the company that Galen originally worked for is in, except the weapons aren't there. Because instead of 
leaving them where he was supposed to leave them, Haas and his team, including Saw, have brought it to basically anti-imperial factions there, and a conflict ensues, and that's basically Krennic's way of keeping Tarkin busy while the last stages of his plan to get himself more power and whatnot are taking place, and then Galen leaving kind of derails everything for him. But in essence, no has no action in that last sequence with Tarkin, unless they just had Tarkin get embroiled in something that didn't have a personal stake for a character for us on the opposite side of the conflict. But it, it really feels like they could have done this book without has Obit in it at all, and we really wouldn't have noticed too much because there are so many ways to do what his character did. And yet, if you remove has Obit and all the situations he was involved with, there's a chance you get a book that has zero action. And it's already a book that is very low on action and much more, again, people in a room talking. So, I don't know, it, it makes me wonder if Lucino built has in from the beginning and that was always part of the plan and that was where the action was going to come from or if there was a realization at some point that the book didn't have much in the way of action, that they needed that and that's where has either was inserted into the story or maybe his role was expanded from what it was meant to originally be. It'd be nice to know that. Uh, I guess the last point I bring up with, with the whole project thing, because I realize we're, you know, probably hour in or so, is the other thing I found interesting relating to real life is uh, the disappearing buddies. Yeah. Because here you've got that Dago Belcos uh, or Daggio Belcos. You've got uh, Riva D, whatever her last name is. And these people that were basically college buddies in the Brintal Futures program, or the Republic Futures program on Brintal, where Galen and Krennic met in the first place. They're old college buddies, basically. But these people are also working on the project, except they're more in the know because they want to be in on sort of the, the deeper level of it, whereas Galen doesn't want to. And when you get to points where either accidents happen or there are successful tests, and yet the people start asking too many questions, they are removed as Krennic puts it, and they all get killed. And it helps to be something that, that sort of raises a red flag for Lyra that they're trying to reach out to these people and they just can't. It's like they disappeared and all mention of them as erased from the holonet, which is insane. What's going on here? And you sit back and say, well, that kind of thing is just, that's, that's something that's just very Star Wars-y. But I'll tell you, I had a buddy of mine, one of my closest buddies back in high school, and he was in JROTC and took it very seriously. And the man wound up eventually graduating a semester early because he got recruited to go into um, the Navy. And he immediately went into naval intelligence. And I'll tell you this, amongst all the friends of mine who were close friends of his, including some that were even closer than me who were almost like brothers with him, we haven't heard a thing about this guy or from this guy in basically almost 20 years. He just disappeared into the intelligence black hole, and because he couldn't exactly talk to people about, you know, his job and where he was and what he was doing, he's just, like, gone. He's a ghost. And in that sense, I kind of think about this type of thing where, you know, if you are part of something that the government needs to keep secret, it really is possible for someone to essentially drop off the planet, so to speak. It's not just a Star Wars-y thing. It's just that in Star Wars, because of how big the galaxy is and, you know, the travel times and everything in between and everything, um, it probably makes sense that that kind of thing is easier to see happen. But it isn't something that is particularly unique to Star Wars. That is a real-life thing if the government's trying to keep a secret and someone is in an operative on something classified, bye-bye, poof, they can disappear. Hopefully my buddy hasn't been iced for any reason, but... It does happen. So again, good connection to the real world, but also, I gotta ask you on that question about Haas. Did Haas need to be there? Was he only inserted just for the action? What would this book have been like without 
Mr. Haas. So for me, I think the Haas angle is the degree of separation from Krennic. I think that Lucino made Krennic a smart enough villain that had it not been Haas, had it been Saw Gerrera instead... I think that you wouldn't have saw Saw become the leader he was, the thorn, the the terrorist in the sense that he becomes. And I felt like that gave the Ursos that one degree of separation because they met Saw through Haas, but they met him in a way that no one knew that they knew Saw. No one knew really who Saw was. Saw was just one of some of those smuggler friends of Haas's. So I, I don't know. I mean, like, I felt that that played like i don't think i would have wanted to see saw guerrera being a stooge in a sense for krennic whereas has has was a stooge so at some point he turns and flips that on everybody and does it in a brilliant way you know but i i think that the big difference there is that i never saw saw as a smuggler first he was always a freedom fighter and i think that the way he was introduced in the book it worked. I mean, he would be a person that would be working with smugglers and things like that. So he would be a person that saw or has would go to that guy because it just makes more sense. You know, he'd be one of the type of people you would see in the bars and stuff. He's got that type of background. Uh, so to me, it's that degree of separation that really works for the character. So I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think that that's really the key element here is that when the Ursos went into hiding, they did so in a way that Krennic could not find him. I mean, I mean, by the time he finally gets to him, it's a few years down the road. All right. Second question, and I'm, this is something that I'll, I'm hoping that on April 4th, we'll be able to tell, or I guess even before that, on March 24th, whenever the digital version is released, assuming it has uh, closed captions available or subtitles available, the con- there's a scene in Rogue One. There is a flashback slash daydream in Rogue One where we see the Ursos in their apartment on Coruscant and Krennic is visiting. And that's where Jin is in the bedroom kind of like fearful and Galen goes in to comfort her. Now, based on the visual guide, we know based on Jin's age that's given that this is happening in the exact same year in which this story ends. Which makes sense because that's when... So it was chapter 27. That's that's what I'm wondering because there is a chapter in this book, and I'm assuming it's the same one that I'm thinking of, where Orson visits and they're having one of their last conversations before the Ursos just bolt. Yeah. And it's sort of where it's really getting more contentious than it needs to be. And there, I don't think there's any point in there where it talks about Galen going in to comfort Jin, Mm-mm. but it's a conversation in which there's enough back and forth that winds up being between Lyra and Orson that you wonder if perhaps it gives Galen a chance to step away. So I'm curious if, in your mind, there was anything that pinned it. Like it's, It seems like that's probably what it was meant to be, probably the connection it was meant to be there, but I don't see anything that pins it down for sure. Did you run into anything that pins down for sure where that would be, or do we need to wait for the subtitles in the film to see if the dialogue matches? I almost think you got to wait for the subtitles, because honestly, when we got to chapter 27, I was like, oh, oh, this is the scene. But I'd already felt like they'd had that moment earlier. But I think that this scene plays better because, you know, it talked, I want to say it talked about him bringing wine in the book, and I wanted to feel like when I saw that scene, it did feel like it had a formal setting to it. Like they were kind of like, hey, you know, how you doing kind of thing. Whereas the first scene, it was kind of like him just being there and they were kind of talking over some of the options and stuff. So I definitely got the feel that it was more of the second one, but I didn't feel like there was anything really to lock that in. Okay. Just curious. And I guess this, the, the last thing that I would bring up for the discussion as a whole is Krennic's character and the idea of paranoia to some degree. 
This is a guy who he's so focused on his career that it also seems like he sees enemies where there shouldn't be any. Like he essentially makes an enemy out of Tarkin. Whether Tarkin really is someone he should be competing with or not, he does things in ways that put off Tarkin and you can see a rivalry between them, which in Tarkin's case, a lot of times he, he sort of thinks about it a few times, but you get the sense from Tarkin's bits in this book that he's not really thinking about it that way. He's not really thinking about Krennic as a rival because he's not all about just the career advancement, but Krennic is. But there's also moments where Krennic's like, you know, Lyra could be a problem. She's working against me in this. She's doing this. She's intentionally doing such and such. What if someone is doing this? And people aren't actually actively acting against him. But he's seeing things that just coincidentally are turning out not to be in his favor. And he assumes there must be some malicious, there we go, there must be some malicious motive behind it or an ulterior motive behind it where it's not just that everything can be taken at face value. He sees schemes within everyone probably because he is a schemer. And I didn't necessarily see that as much with Rogue One, but it does seem as though that explains a lot of his uh, almost temper tantrumish behavior. You know, I am taking over the Death Star. We stand here among the whatever of my achievement and blood. I, I don't know why whenever I get mad as Krennic, it sounds like Yoda. I, I really don't know. <laughs> but, you know, you know, him get, you know, we'll see about this. And he goes to Vader and, you know, his whole thing is, so I'm still in charge. Please, please, sir. Can you tell the Emperor? Please, please, please. I'll be a good boy. I don't know. It just, it seems to me that, again, uh, and that's just another point, I guess, to the broader point, which is if you are a fan of Rogue One, you really do need to read this book because there is so much more you're going to get out of that character and see things in the film, maybe not with a new meaning behind it, but certainly with new context that makes it feel very natural yeah. to the character relative to just seeing it on screen and not really having any background for those characters. I'd say new meaning in the aspect of, of Tarkin and Krennic, because there is a lot more behind the scenes to add to Tarkin's anger. Krennic basically set up a trap for Tarkin with Haas and the smugglers unknowingly like I, I basically Haas is the one that really set it into a war and it ended up being one of the bigger battles Tarkin's ever fought which I thought was interesting and so Tarkin he saw it all as like oh Krennic set me up and so I like the, the animosity that grew out of that scene so there are a couple things that little things that jumped out to me that I wanted to throw your way and see uh, if you got some of the same vibes page 59 they talk about the team's destination being a biological research lab or three separatist scientists or known to be overseeing this creation of a biological agent that's infecting the clone army I felt like that was like a reference to the Karen Travis novel plots of uh, the Separatists trying to create that plague for the uh, clones. I mean, it was subtle. Uh, a lot of these references and stuff were subtle, but I, I felt like that's Lucino doing what I feel Lucino does best. Uh, that being one of those instances. There is also... Page 132, Galen's talking about mathematics and science and how it's poetry. He's basically talking about the Force. It's a great moment. And it's it goes, uh, mathematics isn't just science, it's poetry. Our efforts to crystallize the unglimpsed connections between things. Poetry that bridges and magnifies the mysteries of the galaxy. But the signs and symbols and equation sentence employed to express these connections are not discoveries, but the teasing out of secrets that have always existed. All our theories belong to nature, not us. As in music, every combination of notes and chords, every melody has already been played and sung somewhere by someone. And then he gets interrupted in thought. But I mean, it gets back to what you were saying about him being autistic, seeing things. I almost at times got that feeling that he was a... Uh, 
uh, Michael uh, from Prison Break. Uh, Michael had a special ability where he could look at a lamp and he was the type of brain that wouldn't just see the lamp, but he would see all the components, the washers, the screws, the bolts, the wires that, that go into making up the lamp. And I really got that feeling from Galen. And that was a great illustration of that moment when he was kind of having this epiphany on things like that. Uh, we also see uh, page 151. We see uh, Cartouche. It's the home of the shipyard dedicated to recycling old ventilator destroyers and repurposing them and their munitions across the empire. That was kind of cool. We uh, see the naming of the Western Reaches. Uh, we see, uh, and I found this was a really interesting part. We see the establishment of Coruscant having an area in the Western Hemisphere, halfway between the pole and the equator, which was where some could still stand on the planet's undisturbed surface. It ended up becoming the Bancor Refuge. But the fact that there was a place that you could still touch the original surface on Coruscant, like that's been played with a few times in Legends. I want to say there was like one mountain that was left undisturbed originally. But the way that it was described, I found it was very interesting. We also find... Uh, Compnor still around, which I think this isn't the first time Compnor has been mentioned in canon, but I think this is probably one of the more active times that it was used. And then there was also reference to some crystals, which made me wonder, and I think it was uh, page 167, where they were talking about the crystals, the kyber crystals being so big. And I had to question, were these the crystals from the Clone Wars episodes that weren't finished? The That's episodes what I where Anakin. Earlier. Yeah, so that was directly yeah. that, right? That Although was that? at the end of the episode, it makes it look like it's destroyed, but all the background providence of that crystal that they give in the book basically says, yeah, it survived that, and the Jedi stuck it away for safekeeping in the Outer Rim somewhere. But all the description they give of, like, it was on this planet, and there was this criminal cartel trying to sell it, and the Separatists were getting it, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's straight-up Crystal Crisis on Utapau. Okay, and then the other thing was that one of the... The parts in the book said kybers are, quote, all but indestructible, which made me think of that arc. But it also made me think, well, what if what if they're floating around Endor right now or above Yavin? Like, you know, the Death Star blew up. And if these are are all but indestructible, uh, shouldn't they be there? I mean, if the, the strongest stars have hearts of kyber, then clearly a Death Star blowing up isn't going to do anything to them. Shouldn't they be floating around up there being waiting to be picked up? Kind of like uh, that device from Star Trek Beyond? <laughs> it's just floating well, out there. Watch it turn out to be... Uh... Turned out to be that that's how they got some elements they needed for a Star Killer base or something. Okay, I could I'd be okay with that. But the Star Killer base is red. Does that mean they were all evil? Oh, never mind. They were corrupted. Yes, no, <laughs> that makes more sense. No, I, I think you're onto something. There was a reference that uh, Haas had made when he was piloting Jin and Lyra and uh, Lyra's co-worker around. He talked to it being a star tour. I was like, oh, guys, good moment there. But I think one of the really cool parts for me was in two seventy eight. When we learned that the Empire used a black hole binary known as the Hero Twins as their test firing location. Yes, they had a Death Star shooting range. And that tickled me to no end. I did, what got me was, okay, so I mean, there's a lot of references to twins in Star Wars and such. But one of the references that has stuck with me for years from an old comedy book by Tim Allen, you know, oh, 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 Tim Allen. Uh, he had a comedy book called Don't Stand Too Close to a Naked Man. That was the name of the book. <laughs> and there's a point at which he refers to pieces of male anatomy as Big Sam and the Twins. And I've used that reference before, Big Sam and the Twins. So to have it say the Hero Twins made me think that that's the Star Wars equivalent of saying Big Sam and the Twins. So, so there the, are a couple of black holes that we know of as the Hero Twins. And you can imagine no critics sitting there saying yes. Looking down at himself, yes they are. 
I'm badass or something. But I do think, in that, and that actually is a reference too, to some degree, because you may recall, I believe it was in uh, Last of the Jedi, the book series, the younger reader book series uh, about Ferris Olin, in which we had the Death Star super laser proof of concept tested on a Star Destroyer. And here we've got them testing it on a Star Destroyer. So it is interesting to see. There's a lot of little side reference. I think some of them are things that are just like continuing on just general themes in Star Wars. Like we're not going to reinvent what Compnor is. So we're just going to continue the idea of Compnor being Compor even before that and that sort of thing. Um, but this is Lucino. And he's going to add the little things in. The Rin probably being the one that uh, you mentioned that jumps out the most as he, you know, kind of reaching back and grabbing something. Because remember the Rin were introduced back in... Uh, the uh, New Jedi it, Order. Ages of Chaos, I guess, yeah. I guess it was. Yep. And that was a Lucino book. Yep. So um, very much in the referencing thing. Um, I would actually be curious to see someone from a reference standpoint and how it all fits together. Someone taking my timeline whenever the new edition comes out that actually has Catalyst on it, which will probably be sometime like five, six months from now. Who knows? Maybe not even until October because this year is the 20th anniversary of my Star Wars timeline project. Woo! But... When that comes out, to be able to see somebody who takes the novels themselves, but follows the breakdowns in the timeline, to actually read both Catalyst and Tarkin simultaneously bouncing back and forth chronologically to read them in chronological order. To see really how well Lucino made this fit, because I think a lot of the references, especially in the connections to Tarkin, it seems as though the fact that they've got the same guy writing this as wrote Tarkin was a godsend in terms of a way to really be able to make this all work. Uh, I guess to, to the other thing you said there about the quote there was science versus the force. In a lot of ways, I think that's the way that a lot of scientists view religion. Um, we tend to think of science and religion somehow as opposites, that they, they're constantly butting heads against each other. But you think back to some of the big thinkers of like the scientific revolution era, uh, many of whom were particularly religious, and it wasn't about we're going to prove religion wrong. Or religion says this, science says this, oh, they can't coexist, etc., etc. Whereas in some cases, yeah, that is the case, like, you know, the you know, earth, fire, air, water, quintessence kind of thing, uh, versus elements and molecules and whatnot. But I think about, you know, the idea of, you know, well, this is basically science the way of saying God created this, there's a universe with all these different rules in it, and we are just figuring out what the rules are. We are trying to understand the creation that was made by God or the gods or whatever, depending on what the person's religious background is. So to see that, again, echoing real life into Star Wars, I thought worked very well. It's, And I, I will say, I think this is probably the closest we've ever seen outside of Jedi, where we've seen a book treat the Force as something that can be the basis of a religion for someone who is non-Force sensitive, as was the case with, uh, in a lot of ways with Lyra here. Um, and as for me, I think this is about all I've got for this, but we've teased out about a good hour and a half worth of content from a book that I wasn't sure we'd be able to discuss for like half an hour um, without running out of stuff. So I think I think we've done this book a good service here. Yeah, Lyra, uh, you know, a couple of things I want to talk. I got about three. Lyra, you know, when I came into this book, I thought, you know, she could have been a, a Jedi with the backstory. I think the book does a real good job of explaining why you get that sense of her and why she won't. Page 326, they give us the Jedi Temple being turned into the seat of the Imperial Court, uh, which kind of harks back to some of the original games and stuff where the Imperial homeworld, or, I mean, the uh, throne room was basically the Jedi Temple. It had that look, and then we found out, oh, the Jedi Temple is, is different. Oh, well, they, they've kind of gone back to that. I like that. But one of the ones that really stuck out, too, was uh, is that moment when Galen kind of breaks down truth on page 310. You know, he goes, uh, 
the, this is actually after that moment in chapter 27 where Krennic leaves, and we're thinking that's that moment from the book, or I mean from the movie. Uh, they're gone, she says, and Galen goes, all he did was counterattack and talk around everything we brought up. Instead of denying everything, he deflected. Even when he claimed not to know where Riva and Dago are, he's complicit, if not responsible. Uh, and then he goes on, and she goes, I know how much this facility means to you, but at least we're closer to learning the truth. He shook his head. There is no one truth. We're both right. We're both wrong. There are truths and falsehoods on both sides. It's irrelevant whether he had any part in what had happened to our friends or to our facilities. We're never going to learn the full story. There's simply too much at stake. He stopped mid-sentence and added, What matters is I can't do this anymore. What choice do we have? There comes a point when an oath's not justification enough for silence. Galen, I'm the one provided them with the what they need to weaponize the research. I played into their hands. You when? And he goes on, but he, he talks, he gets to another part. And he goes, I had myself convinced that I was doing it for you and Jin and to safeguard for future generations. Instead, I failed as a husband, a father, and a scientist. I can't do anything about being a failed scientist, but I can correct the rest if it's not too late. Which I like the fact that when we see him next, he's a farmer. You know, like he sees that this and everything he's done in this book has ruled out his being a scientist. He can't do it. He becomes so hung up on the discovery, the knowledge of it, the pushing the boundaries of science that he overlooked the responsibility he had. You know, it's like that one moment of just because you can do something, you know, doesn't mean you should. That, that, That gives you two references then. One... Their scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think that they should, right? Ian Malcolm for Jurassic Park. Yes. Or the idea that he had to go into farming, otherwise he would have woken up one day with an arrow through his chest and a hooded man on the other side of the room saying, You have failed this galaxy. <laughs> Pretty much. And the last thing I really have to say is I felt that the last chapter of this book was beautifully added. Uh, it is the first shift to a point of view from this point of view, and I think from where this book hands off into the film, it was the best point of view they could have done. And that was from Jin herself. Uh, you know, it goes, uh, Jin watched and listened. She didn't know what the Empire was or who the Empire was, but Mama and Papa and Saw didn't like it. In some ways, the Empire made them leave behind all her toys and Mama and Papa's clothes and other things and Mac V too, who would have nothing to do with them there. But she felt warm and safe in Papa's arms and Saw was a new friend. Mama and Papa were good and so was Saw. And so was she good like Bryn in this book that she had read earlier uh, but if they tried hard enough maybe they could find the way home or the home that they were looking for what I find so interesting is the fact that it's it's a kid's point of view and she's just breaking down the good and evil of things from her point of view and I think like for me one of the things that really strikes and hits home for me is the political realm of our world right now I mean I'm paying more attention to politics for the first time in my life and it's something I genuinely hate and despise and typically Most of my opinions were based off of things from my parents when I was growing up, you know, the things that they said and did when I was younger. And it's interesting to see that that has influenced Jin and it's given her that point of view. I mean, she was always there. She was always being drug along, but we never got her point of view. And in the end, her point of view basically comes down to mom, dad saw good, empire bad. And what's funny is I I think that you've just described in Jin's point of view, the point of view of most Americans right now, particularly those getting their news from social media. This party good, this other party bad. Yeah, yeah th- this is definitely one that's that's got some moments to think, and the moral ambiguity is a fun thing to deal with. And in the case, in, in this case, 
it's not a moral ambiguity in the Cassian sort of way. I believe I am a good person, I believe I'm working for a good cause, but I'm doing all these horrible things and eventually it's eating at me. Whereas in this case, it's sort of the, should Galen bear guilt? He does, but he was being manipulated. He was doing what he did. He, he did what he did to try to, you know, bring clean energy and, and renewable energy to the galaxy. He thought that was the Emperor's dream as well. He thought he was going to essentially save the galaxy from a resource standpoint and make people's lives better. Then he finds out that all of his work has been, been being put to some horrible use. As such, does he bear the guilt? Should he bear the guilt? And to what degree is he culpable? Because in a lot of ways, it's that guilt that drives him to, you know, live that more simple life. But it's the guilt and now the revelation that has happened in this book of what this is really for and what Krennic, or how Krennic really is as a person, as opposed to being a true friend, that drives him in a lot of ways to be willing to accept supposedly being this cowed scientist, you know, finding solace in his work, and then in the background saying, I'm going to sabotage this and finding ways to work against Krennic. So the character needs the guilt to be propelled forward. But it does raise interesting questions about, you know, to what degree, if you're scientific, like if somebody, you know, if I'm someone who develops a new technique for genetically targeting, going back to the clone thing, genetically targeting medicine, here is a, here is a cure for Alzheimer's that's not actually going to help everyone, but we have a baseline that can help everyone if we genetically go in and tweak this substance to match the genetic profile of the person we're trying to cure, it will work but only if we make this targeted medicine. And somebody uses my developments in that area to create a targeted disease that only kills certain individuals, or take it to a broader scale that some racist group gets their hands on and tries to use, as has been done in some sci-fi stories before, to kill off a race of people. Imagine a neo-Nazi or a KKK uh, a firebrand with their hands on a disease that is genetically designed to only kill black people, Jews, anyone, perhaps, that is not white. Imagine Hitler with his hands on that type of thing. Do I, by developing something meant to save people that has maybe saved tons of lives or bettered tons of lives by making that breakthrough, do I bear a, a measure of responsibility because somebody then took my work, added onto it, twisted it, and tweaked it to create something horrible? You can make an argument either way. You know, it's a question of what it comes down to. Does it come down to the results? Does it come down to the intentions? Does it come down to your conscious decisions? What's in your hands? What's not in your hands? We humans have a, have a, a very unique capacity to both accept guilt we don't deserve and to avoid guilt we do and everything in between. So it raises interesting moral questions that could be the basis for philosophical discussion particularly based around Galen. Not necessarily something we would have gotten straight out of the film, but now that we know his background and what he did, Catalyst can become the, wait for it, Catalyst, for that type of discussion. No, no, I like what you're doing. That, that actually reminded me, when the Bacora Refuge was moved to clear away for the science and stuff, it definitely had that feeling of the U.S. moving the Native Americans from you know their places, and, and here you've got your... You know, come over here. You can do it out here. You're fine over here. Stay in this land. And this is your protective space. Oh, but we're going to move you over here now because we need that protective space. And really, we just gave it to you. We were only loaning it to you. So we're going to move the reservation over here now. You guys are going to be but moved Did you notice out. where they moved them? No. Would to, you a, they to a world. To, they, they moved them off the freaking planet. <laughs> 
to a world in the outer rim that is described as a dying world. So they moved them to a place that was oh. of a similar natural environment, but a place they already knew was not long-term sustainable. And maybe this is because the way they describe these, these Bancora are as sentient ruminants, basically sentient cows. And maybe that was the oh, empire okay. being like, screw them. They're not quote unquote, like us going back to what the legends constitute did so much with a human centric view of the empire. That was another of those. Whoa. Yeah. That, that, that hits a little close to home. Native Americans being shuffled across the continent. Just, just, just continue going West. You'll be fine. Uh, no, it doesn't work like See, that. See, and I was under the impression they did that while it was still the Republic, too. And I was just like, there was a lot of things where I was like, wow. Well, it was immediately after the Clone Wars. So it was immediately after the Empire came to power when they did it. It was generations ago. I think they said 50 generations ago was when it was founded by, because I had to put this date on the timeline, so it's stuck in my head, uh, this uh, former Supreme Chancellor uh, who created the refuge in the first place. I want to say it was like, 12,500 years ago, I don't have it open, but it was something like that. It was 25 times 50, because <laughs> um, that many that much time per generation. And then as soon as the Empire gets power, it's like, boom, it's gone. Because there had been this gap in time, and it's uh, it's shortly after that 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 Krennic comes to, to, to that hotel and is like, Hey, Galen, let me give you these kyber crystals and make you an offer you can't refuse. And by the way, we've actually got a workspace pretty much set up for you. Don't ask where and don't ask how we got that land, but you know, I think you're good. Very much real-life government. Oh, yes. I, I also like the fact that they uh, use the name Celestial for Celestial Power. I was like, oh, the Celestials are still around in a, in a very obscure way. I think, though, one of the things about this book that really serves Rogue One, and I think you hit on it before, is that redemption angle. You know, uh, when we see Bodhi, Rook, talking about his discussions with Galen about, you know, you can do something, you can make a stand. You know, when we see Krennic show up and finally take out Lear, I mean, from Krennic's point of view, that was that moment was a long time coming, and I think when they slipped out from underneath his fingers on Coruscant, that basically had the trigger pulled. Like, the second he saw her and had an excuse i think he was already ready to do it because of the fact that his promotion was stalled for so long because of what she did but i think that once she dies once Jin is taken from galen at that point not only does he already know everything he had done before was bad but now he's in that opportunity to rebel he's in that opportunity to correct the mistake and the conversation he has with bodhi is the testament to everything that we have witnessed throughout this book that is just inferred in the film itself like I, I think that that is probably the biggest benefit from this book is how the dynamic between that generation of the characters who really they're they're integral to the plot of rogue one but they're not integral cast members to rogue one so much as krennic as just the foil to the heroes but i, I think that there is a critical aspect of that element that will definitely pay off a lot more once you've read this book. Um, you know, I did say I felt like it was a throwaway, but I say only in the aspect of those characters, Lyra, Galen, and Krennic, don't live past Rogue One. So they, in the grand scheme of things, aren't a big splash in the pond. And if you're not looking to get the most out of them, you could skip this book and never go back to it. But I think if you're going to watch that movie and you want to get the most bang for your buck, this is a really good way to do it. Well said. Well said. <laughs> I'm a pretending busy.
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars questions or Legends questions or any other questions, just fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors, they have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe, the Legends universe, or even the Harry Potter one, or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan, who will see you at Celebration finally! Woo! Saying, thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That, speaking of that Battlefront Fix video that I just got another comment on as we're recording, um, don't quote us the odds that people will understand that if your solution doesn't work for them... It's not actually your fault that their game doesn't work. It's the company's. Yeah, I just got called some <laughs> names because my solution didn't work for somebody who's probably not logged in under the right account. Oh, lovely. What are the odds that it'll work for me? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see, but at least I can troubleshoot for you. I can be there to help guide you. There you go. You know, if I fail, I'll leave you a note going, this is my snotty note, Nate. <laughs> I'm done. I can't podcast with you anymore because you didn't make my algorithm DLC work correctly. You fad. Uh, I can't wait to play those levels. Ah, the Death Star. Here I come. Again, getting to some of these subtle references and stuff that I wanted to kind of beat off of you a little bit to see if you noticed. I, uh, I'm, page not, I'm not sure you want to phrase it that way. <laughs> You're right. That could be a blooper. <laughs> I, think, I think that is probably uh, that, that that's that's probably somewhere uh, in uh, uh, beyond the films after dark or something. And remember, you can always. <laughs> what is wrong with me, Nathan? Oh, we haven't podcasted in too long. That's why. Right.